You're listening to Amazing Discoveries Audio. This is Echoes from the Past, Pictures of the Future, Episode 7, with Daniel Pell. All right, let's continue with our presentation, number 8, and we are going to launch into the book of Revelation. We have completed our studies in the book of Daniel, and uh, I must add that we could have, you know, continued to study the book of Daniel uh, for many, many more studies, for many, many more presentations and lectures. Um, as a matter of fact, I'm still studying the book of Daniel. I'm still learning when I study the pages of this book. It is a continual journey into truth. And uh, we have a limited amount of time in this series. We have a, a series of 14 parts, 14 part series. And so we're trying to get the bigger picture of these books, Daniel and Revelation. And though we're not able to study every single verse in depth, in depth I pray that you will go back and uh, search out these precious truths and continue to learn from these precious teachings that have been handed down to us. So we've looked at the book of Daniel, we've, given, we've, we've taken the big picture, a bird's perspective of that book, and now we're going to get into the book of Revelation. And so I look forward, I'm very thrilled to be able to move into the book of Revelation and to uh, make discoveries together with you as we uh, move through the pages of this sacred book that has been handed down to us. Again, we want to invite God's Spirit to be with us as we do not want to uh, embark upon this journey in our own strength. So let us pray together. Father in heaven, please guide us as we begin our studies in the book of Revelation. Please be with us now as we open to this last book in your holy scriptures. May you guide us with your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to turn to the book of Revelation and chapter 1 and verse 1. We begin in chapter 1 and verse 1. Revelation, the last book in the Bible, it's not hard to find. And a very important book in the Bible. Many people do not study the book of Revelation anymore. I've been traveling uh, around the world giving seminars on the book of Revelation. And many times people will come up to me on more than, more than one occasion. I've had people come up to me and say, well, this is the first time I've heard a lecture on the book of Revelation. And they've been Christian for many, many years. So uh, there are a lot, of, a lot of Christians, a lot of denominations that do not take heed to the prophecies of Revelation, that have bypassed uh, this book and, and, and they believe that it's shrouded in mystery and that we cannot understand it. Isn't it interesting that there's one book in the Bible that is called Revelation and many that believed that there is no revelation to be found therein. And so the very title itself it shows us that there is indeed truth to be found. It's a revelation of the character of God. It's a revelation of his plan for us living in these last days. So chapter 1 and verse 1, listen to how the book opens. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place, and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads, and those who hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near." I want you to take notice of verse 3. There is a blessing pronounced upon those who read the words 
of revelation. So you and I are, are, we can anticipate a blessing at the outset of these studies. Not because I promise that blessing, not because you seek for that blessing, even though these things are important, but because the word of God itself promises this blessing. Amen? It says, we will be blessed. Blessed is who reads, who, is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. So there's a, even an extra blessing, but not only hearing, but not only reading, but also hearing. And then it says, and keep those things which are written in it. So there's a triple blessing. There's a blessing in reading. There's a blessing in hearing. But there's also a blessing in doing, in allowing these texts, these prophecies to transform our lives so that it becomes more than a theory, but it becomes a transformation. So we have the prophecies given by God himself to Jesus Christ, handed down to John and now given to us. Revelation chapter 1 introduces us to John, the John that was exiled on the island of Patmos. He is the writer of the book of Revelation and he was uh, taken captive by Rome. They tried to kill him. Uh, the story goes that they put him in cooking oil, but he survived miraculously. And so in order to get rid of him, they banished him to the island of Patmos. And it was there that he fulfilled the great task of writing not only the book of Revelation, but also the Gospel of John and uh, his gospel account. And both these um, have been canonized into the scriptures and we have them in our possession today. So as we read the book of Revelation, think about the setting in which it was written. John banished on the island of Patmos and there looking forward to what was gonna happen with the church of God, looking forward to what was on the horizon and God gave him a vision. God gave him, a, gave him many visions of what was gonna to come to pass in the world until the final deliverance when he would return. Just like Daniel was a captive in Babylon when he received the visions and dreams between 500 and 600 years before Christ, so John is a captive of Rome during the first century when he is given his dreams and visions. Both are captives, both looked forward to a final deliverance, and both wrote these apocalyptic prophecies for you and for me, and we are also looking forward to that final deliverance. Now in, Daniel, in Revelation, here I go, Daniel, we're now in Revelation. In Revelation chapter one, we, <clears throat> we are introduced to Jesus Christ that appears to John on the island of Patmos. Let's pick it up in verse nine. Revelation chapter one and verse nine, it says the following. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. And then verse 11, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Now the words that are spoken here to John are the very words spoken by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ that had walked with John while he was on earth is now appearing to John when he is on this island all by himself. And Jesus appears to him, uh, not, as, uh, not as he appeared to him, not as he knew him when he walked on this earth, 
but as a king of kings and lord of lords. He appears as the overcomer. He appears here as even when you look at the Dick's description of Jesus in chapter 1, he appears as a priest. And we know, of course, that that was also his position at that time in the sanctuary, in the heavenly sanctuary, where he was the high priest. And so this high priestly, uh, kingly appearance comes across the um, pages um, here in Revelation all throughout the book, and especially here in chapter 1 as we are introduced to Jesus. And take notice of the description uh, in chapter, uh, chapter 1 and verse 12. Then I, this is John's uh, writing here, turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded with a chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like, snow, like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like the flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. Can you imagine this appearance of Jesus? It says in verse 16, He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Quite an appearance of Jesus. And of course, when John beholds it, it is just too overwhelming. And in verse 17 it says, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Just like Daniel, when he beheld Jesus in his glory, he fell as a dead man to the earth. So John has the same experience. But Jesus raises him up. And he raises them up for a special purpose, and that is to reveal his will and to reveal the prophecies concerning what was going to come upon the earth. Look at verse 19, chapter 1 and verse 19. Jesus says, Write these things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. So here we see the implication of prophecy. Verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So the lampstands that appeared there in that first vision were the, a symbol of the churches, the seven churches. And Jesus is seen walking between the lampstands. Jesus is seen among his people. Remember the last words that Jesus spoke to his disciples before he left them? He says, he, he gave them the promise that he will come again, and he gave them the promise that if, when they went into all the world preaching the gospel, that he would be with them even unto the end of the ages. And so Jesus shows this in this prophetic picture of seven lampstands representing seven churches and representing that he himself is amongst us by walking between those seven lampstands. And of course, the church is purposed to be a light in the world. It is to be a light shining with the character of Christ. In Revelation chapter 1, Jesus appears uh, <coughs> before John, and he is given the command to write letters to seven destinations, to seven churches. And that's exactly what he does. And you read about those seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. Now, those seven destinations or seven churches were all literal churches at the time of John. 
uh, at the time of John, um, most likely John had even visited some of these churches and ministered to them. We have the church of Ephesus, the church of Smyrna, the church of Pergamum, of, of Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. These are the seven churches that we read about and the seven letters that are written to these seven destinations. But more than being seven literal destinations in the time of John, these churches are also a symbol of the church that would, um, the movement of God or the church of God throughout the ages from the days of John all the way until the second coming of Jesus Christ. So not only do we have seven churches being seven destinations, but we really have a picture of what's going to happen throughout the church history, throughout the ages, even unto the very days and age in which we are living. It's very fascinating to see the dual application of the seven letters that are written and recorded there in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Jesus appears to John and says, write unto the seven churches. And he lists them there in verse 11 of chapter 1. It says, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. And then he lists them, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. He lists the seven churches. And so the book of Revelation is written to these churches, the, particularly the letters that we find there in, in chapters 2 and 3. Now, as we're going to study these letters tonight, and we're going to look at the seven churches, I want you to bear in mind that it has a dual application, not just being letters to those literal churches, but also a revelation of what was going to come. And this we see in a very clear way, because when you look at the message to the churches, it talks about events that were far beyond the first century. And uh, it talks about, even about the coming of Jesus Christ the second time. Now, the first three churches don't mention anything about Christ's coming. But when you come to the fourth letter, which is the letter to uh, Thyatira, Thyatira, look at the message there in verse 25, chapter 2 and verse 25. Listen to what it says. Jesus says, but hold fast what you have till I come. This is the first indication of the coming of Jesus that we find in the messages to the seven churches. Then we continue in the next letter, in the letter to Sardis, and look at chapter 3 and verse 3, another indication of Christ's coming. It says, remember therefore how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent, therefore if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. So Jesus says, I will come upon you. There are other texts in the Bible where Jesus says, I will come upon you as a thief in the night, indicating his coming in the end of time. Now, look at the next church, the church of Philadelphia. And again, we have an indication of the coming of Christ. It's becoming stronger even in language. Look at chapter 3 and verse 11. Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. Jesus says, I am coming quickly. So we are getting nearer and nearer and nearer to the second coming. And then look at the last church, the letter to Laodicea. And we read in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20 that Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. 
Jesus is standing at the door and knocking. He is very, very close. Now, what we are seeing here is over and over again that Jesus is giving the promise that he is coming back. It is a promise that the scripture is full of, particularly the New Testament is full of the promise of Christ's second coming. And the letters that were written to the various churches in the time of John were also letters that are written to you and to me and that are a prophetic panorama of the church throughout the ages leading up to where we are today because as we're going to find out tonight, we are living in the period of the seventh church. We are living in the time period that Jesus is even standing at the door. We are on the verge of eternity and Jesus is about to return. And so what we are seeing in the seven churches is a picture of what Christ wants to do with his people, what he has done, and what is going on. And so why don't we look at these messages, and we're going to start with the first message, which is the letter that was written to the church of Ephesus. And we need to be keen students of God's word in order to understand these messages. And so with the help of the Holy Spirit, we... we uh, we, we embark upon this journey, so to speak, of Scripture. It is, not without, uh, it is not without the Holy Spirit, because if we do not have the Holy Spirit by our side, we will not be able to grasp these spiritual truths, because the Bible says spiritual things are spiritually discerned. Now, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1, the first letter is written to the church of Ephesus. Verse 1 says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Jesus introduces himself each time to each church. If you have the, the, the letters of Jesus in red in your Bible, then all these letters, all these words of Revelation 2 and 3 should be in red because they are the words of Jesus. And so Jesus is, is speaking through John and John is recording these words and then sending it to its destination. And so Jesus says, I am the one that walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. He goes on in verse 2, he says, I know your works, your labor, your patient, and that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars, and you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. This is a, uh, an, a, an encouragement to the first church, the church of Ephesus, that they were, that they were uh, empowered and that they were faithful to the command to go out and to preach the gospel. They had a love for the truth and the Bible says that Jesus knew their works and that he found them to be a people of perseverance, that he found them to be a people that have not become wary, according to verse 3. Now, you look at the time period of Ephesus, and the name Ephesus, uh, the name itself means desirable. And indeed, this first church in the first century was desirable as it went forward in great power preaching um, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, when Paul came to the city of Ephesus, and you can read this story in the book of Acts, he preached with great power about the resurrection of Christ, the death and resurrection of Christ. And he created quite a stir in that city. As a matter of fact, some of the people that had formerly been worshipping the idols in that city, they turned to the, uh, and took heed to the gospel of Christ, and 
the people that were in that city making a living from these idols and selling them, they um, got very angry with Paul. Uh, they started burning literature that... Um, uh, spiritualistic literature, literature um, that um, spoke about these gods and goddesses that they served. And the Bible tells us that a great, great number of literature were burnt there in the city of Ephesus through the preaching of Paul. But this created also, of course, a lot of hatred towards Paul. And it was only by the grace of God that he came alive um, out of Ephesus at that time. You can read that story in the book of Acts. Quite fascinating. But Ephesus is a picture of the first century church. And it gives a description there in Revelation chapter 2 of the works of this church and of the uh, zeal that this church had for the truth. And so this letter written to the church of Ephesus is not only a letter that was written to the literal church of Ephesus in the days of John, but it's also a picture of of the first century church as a whole. And you could date this period to being around the first century, so the first hundred years. Um, and as we come to the second uh, church or the second letter, we will see how it moves into the second century, uh, describing events that happened in the second century. And so it's very interesting to look at the prophetic panorama of these seven letters, these seven churches. So let us go to the next church, the church of Smyrna, and I wish we had more time to go into all the details of each church, but I just want to give you, again, a, a big picture, a larger overview of these um, churches and also of these time periods uh, in the uh, history of the church or the movement of God. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 8, we have Jesus that is now speaking these words to the church of Smyrna and John is recording these words so that he can write this letter or, or that he can send this letter to this church. It says in verse 8, and to the church of the to the angel of the church of Smyrna write, these things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. Jesus introduces himself each time to each church in a different way. To Ephesus, he introduced himself as the one that was walking between the uh, lampstands, the, uh, the seven golden lampstands. And here in uh, the second letter, Jesus introduces himself as the one that is the first and the last who was dead and came to life. This is very significant because it corresponds with the message that is given to the church at this time. Take notice of what the message is all about. Verse 9, it says, I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Jesus, when he's writing to this church, is telling the church that they are going to go through a time of tribulation, a time of difficulty. Now, there was, of course, tribulation and difficulty in the first century. And as a matter of fact, if you look at the uh, location of Smyrna, certainly there was tribulation in that area as well. But this is also talking about the century that followed the first century, the second century, and a great persecution that broke out um, 
with, against the church of God at that time. It's interesting that it notes in verse 10 that there would be a tribulation of 10 days. A tribulation of 10 days. Jesus Christ said that he was the first and the last, the one that was dead and is alive. So the confidence is given that just as Christ rose to life, so those that put their trust in him will also be risen to life. Now those 10 days of tribulation, they are um, pointing to the time period under Emperor Diocletian, which persecuted the Christians severely for a period of 10 days, uh, 10 years. Now you remember the day-year principle in Bible prophecy, so we have a prophetic time here of 10 days, which equals 10 years. And from AD 303, 303 AD to 313 AD was a time period of great, great persecution under Diocletian. So in the uh, second century and also moving into the third century, there was great, great persecution that broke out against the Christians. And of course, this was a persecution by pagan Rome, the Roman Empire that ruled at that time. The Christians believed that they were to worship none other than Jesus Christ. Of course, this was not acceptable in this pagan empire because more and more prominent was the worship of emperors. And so the emperors that would take the throne, and particularly Diocletian and others, they uh, made the people worship them, and those that did not worship them would be persecuted and would even lose their lives. But what a promise is given there in, in, in the letter. Jesus says, I was dead, but am alive. I died, but I am alive. So just as Jesus died, but was resurrected, so the hope is given to these that suffer persecution during this period, that they will be resurrected as well. As you look at the promise that is given in the end of the letter, it says in verse 11, it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. So there is a promise of overcoming. There is a promise of not being hurt by the second death. There will be a death that these will not experience. They will experience eternal life by putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so we have the description of the persecuted church during that century. Now then you go and you look at the course of Christianity throughout the ages and you can see that it moved from a dynamic growing church where they had a zeal for the message which is described there in the first letter to a persecuted church that was uh, being attacked from many, very, from various sides, especially from the uh, emperors that were in power at that time, and yet the persecution did not cause the church to diminish its zeal. As a matter of fact, it, it, it continued to grow. And there was one author that said that the blood of the martyrs was as the, was the seed of the gospel. So as many were put to death, at the same time there were many that were springing, uh, springing up like, like, like seeds that were budding and the gospel was just growing and growing and growing tremendously during that time. And so we come to the next church period, the third letter, which is the letter that is written to uh, Pergamum. The letter, the, or, or what's also is termed Pergamos. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 12, listen to the introduction to the third church. It says, verse 12, And to the angel of the church of Pergamos write, These things says he who has a sharp two-edged sword. 
So Jesus introduces himself to the first church as the one that walks between the gold, seven candle golden sticks. To the second church, he introduces himself as the one that was dead and yet is alive. To the third church, he introduces himself as the one that has a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And the question is, what does a two-edged sword, what does that represent? Because clearly this is symbolic language. Well, in the book of Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, the Bible says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So the word of God is a two-edged sword. It is powerful. It's sharp. It cuts and it reveals error and it leads to truth. Now, this word of God that has the power to cut sin out of our lives and to bring the righteousness of God into our lives, this word of God is clearly revealed to this third church. Why? Because now we enter into an experience, now we enter into a time period in which the word of God was being replaced by the traditions of man. As we come to the third and fourth century, as we come to a time period of compromise, we come to the description that we read about in the letter to Pergamos. Pergamos actually means elevated, but the truth of God was not being elevated at this time. It was the traditions of man that were elevated above the truth of God. Listen to the description uh, of, of, of Jesus. L listen to the words of Jesus to this church at that time. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 13, it says, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. So it talks here about those that are faithful during this time, but also those that had compromised and had left the truth of God. And it describes them and likens them unto Balaam. Now, I don't know if you remember the story of Balaam. It's a story that you can read about in the Old Testament. And by the way, this is why it is so important to read the rest of the Bible in order to understand the book of Revelation. Some people, they think that they can just take the book of Revelation, read it and understand it without the rest of the Bible. But if you don't read the rest of the Bible and all the stories that are found in the Old Testament, you will oftentimes not underst understand the typology that is being used in the book of Revelation. Now, Balaam was a false uh, prophet. He professed to be a true prophet, but what he did is he came, he was... Um, uh, called upon by, by uh, a king uh, that was uh, wanting to go at war against Israel. Israel was in the wilderness at this time and they were about to enter into Canaan. And this king that lived in Canaan, he was afraid of the Israelites. And so what he did is he called Balaam and he said, Balaam, can't you go and curse those people? And he knew that, you know, Balaam, he thought that Balaam had some, some ability to, some spiritual ability to curse. And so he calls upon Balaam. Balaam makes his way to the camp of the Israelites. And you might remember the story. He holds out his arms and he's ready to curse the people of God. But what comes out of his mouth? Blessings. 
blessings come out of his mouth. God turned that situation around and blessings came. Now he goes back to the king. The king is now, of course, in real trouble because now they've been blessed instead of cursed. And so what is he going to do? Well, he comes up with plan B. And plan B is that he takes some of the most beautiful women of his realm, of his kingdom, and he sends them into the camp of the Israelites. The Israelites, they are swayed by these women and they become influenced by them and they enter into relationships with them and they become influenced by them and they start worshipping the gods of these women, the gods of this foreign nation, this pagan nation. And so that actually led to the, um, led to the curse of Israel and they had to go back into the wilderness for another 40 years. So very, very sad to see that they could not enter into the promised land because of the compromise that took place at that time. And so here in Revelation, when the message is given to Pergamos, the story of Balaam is brought to the scene of, 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 of Pergamos, to the letter of Pergamos, and it is likened unto the times of Pergamos. And when we look at this time period that we have now arrived in, we've looked at the first church being the first century, the second church being the time of persecution under the second century, now we come to Pergamos, the third church, the third letter, we're describing here the third and the fourth century, it was a time in which Constantine, Constantine compromised in becoming a Christian, but it was really a political move, as we spoke about earlier uh, in our presentations, by merging together paganism and Christianity. Now, when that happened, really, you know, the devil was rejoicing because what he could not destroy by persecution, he was now achieving by uh, merging Christianity with paganism. So this was really plan, you know, plan A was to destroy them, plan, but now he moved to plan B and he stuck with that plan ever. And that was if you can't, if you can't defeat them, join them. Now, this was a time in which, of course, a lot of paganistic forms of worship came into the Christian church. And you read the description of the third church there in Revelation chapter 2, and it describes this time of compromise. As it says in verse 15, listen to what it says. It says, thus you have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. These were false doctrines that had come into the church in early centuries. Which thing I hate. Now those teachings were already present in the first century, and so this church of Pergamos, in its literal setting in the days of John, was struggling with those with those teachings, but here in the larger setting, we are seeing how Christianity is struggling with false doctrines, particularly in the third and fourth century, when paganism is now flooding the church. Now, listen to what it says, because uh, with all of this going on, still a promise is given to this church in verse 17. It says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. Now when we think of manna, manna fell in the wilderness. It was the heavenly food that supplied man in their journeys through the wilderness. It was also a symbol of the word of God. The bread from heaven, 
the bread being Jesus Christ, the word of God. So those that are faithful, they receive the word of God. Those that are faithful will take heed to the two-edged sword and the hidden manna. This was given, and this message was given at a time when it was needed most, because here we, are lit, we, have, we have come to a time of great compromise. Now, I want you to take notice of the description there. If you back up a little bit to verse 13, it says, Jesus says to the church of Pergamos, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now, he describes Pergamos as where Satan's throne is. When you look a little bit at the history of Pergamos, it's very interesting. Pergamos um, was, was, was a place where the Babylonian priesthood had their headquarters. The Babylonian priesthood, of course, was, was originated in Babylon, but when the Medes and the Persians um, conquered Babylon, the original priesthood of the Babylonians, they fled and they settled in Pergamos. And so it's interesting how in the letter, Jesus talks about this locality, this place as the seat of Satan, the very seat of where all these false doctrines are originating from. Now, uh, the Babylonian priest had a title and that title was Pontifex Maximus. Now, that means the bridge builder, the mediator between heaven and earth. Um, it was believed that the Babylonian priest was the mediator through which you could be saved. Now, they did not put their faith in Jesus Christ, but they put their faith in a human being, the priest. The priest had two keys, one to heaven and one to hell. And so the priests um, that were in um, Pergamos were also called Pontifex, Pontifex Maximus. This title that had been originated with the Babylonian priesthood had been passed on later to the emperors of Rome. You might remember that the emperors in Rome also bore the title Pontifex Maximus. Now that title was later bequeathed to the papacy and the popes also bore that title as well. They believed that they were the bridge builders, the mediator between heaven, between heaven and earth. Now, that's quite interesting how that was passed on, and this was happening in a time of compromise. But of course, we know from Scripture that the only way to heaven is through Jesus Christ. He is the bridge builder, amen? He is the ladder between heaven and earth. So we have here a counterfeit system that sets itself up between man and God. There's a lot more that we could say about that, but we need to move forward in our presentation here. And so during this time, there's also a time of persecution against those that are faithful to God's word. Take notice, though, that this persecution is not coming from a pagan source, but now it's coming from a church system. In the second letter, we read about a persecution, and that was in the time of paganism, the second century. But now we've come to a time where this persecution is spearheaded by a system that is turned away from the truth of God, a false religious system. And so we're also reminded, of course, of, 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 these, of this period from the book of Daniel that also spoke about, about this period. The next church you read about after Pergamum or Pergamus is the church of Thyatira. And this is a letter that is written um, that really exposes to a great extent, the consequences of this compromised church. Now, the meaning of the name Thyatira means continual sacrifice. And a sacrifice 
had to be made by God's people during this time period. It was a dark, dark time period as the church had compromised and now moved into persecuting those that held on to the truth. Thyatira is covering the period of the Dark Ages. It is covering the periods of um, the years that we also uh, studied about in the book of Daniel, the period of the 1260 uh, years from 538 to 1798, where you have lots and lots and lots of martyrs that gave up their life for the truth of Scripture. Take notice of the description there um, in Revelation chapter 2. And I want you to take notice again of Jesus and how he introduces himself to this church. In verse 18 it says, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You see, first he is identifying those that are faithful, and then he identifies those that have gone astray, just like he did in the letter to Pergamos. So there are those that are faithful, but listen now to the description of those that have walked in the ways of darkness. Verse 20. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allowed that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. Again, a story of the past is brought to our attention. Just like under the, uh, in the letter of Pergamos, we read about Balaam, so in the letter to Thyatira, we read about Jezebel. Now, you go back to the Old Testament, you read about the story of Jezebel. Maybe some of you will rem remember the story. Jezebel was a heathen queen that married to the king of Israel. You will note that Jezebel is the wicked queen that unites herself with a king so that she can have stately power and enforce her religious practices. And so we have religious practices enforced by the state in those days. Now that's an interesting scenario that is repeating itself now in the Christian history as we come to a time where church and state unites and a persecution breaks out um, during the long dark ages of the rule of the papacy. And so we see again how these stories connect with the events that we see in church history. During those dark, dark ages, many, they lost their lives for the truth. They stood firm for God's word, and yet many of them, they shed their blood for the sake of the gospel. There were those that were faithfully holding on to the truth throughout the ages and that made sure that the word of God was translated and was communicated and given on so that we have it today in our possession. This indeed is a blood-stained book. And when we open it up, we should open it up in awe and reverence for those that have gone before us and made it possible for us to possess such truth. Now, here you have a little bit of an overview of what we've looked at so far. Seven churches, which are not only seven literal ladders to literal destinations in Asia Minor at the time of John, which of course met the needs of those churches, but they are also prophetic messages 
that span the Christian era. And so we have Ephesus, that was the apostolic church from year 31 AD to about 100 AD. Now, these are not dates that you can really set in stone, but they are uh, uh, indications of the time periods that we're dealing with. Then you have Smyrna, the second church, uh, which characterizes the persecution of the years between 100 and 323 AD. Now, the year 323 is significant because that was when Constantine was ruling and passing his degrees that led to this uh, formation of uh, paganism merging with Christianity. We have the Church of Pergamum, the, the Age of Compromise, from 323 to 538. And then we have Thyatira, the beginning of the Dark Ages. You'll remember this prophecy from uh, Daniel as well, this time period of 1260 years of papal supremacy, 538 to 1798. And so we come to the church of Sardis, the church of Sardis, and take notice of the description um, of that is given regarding this period of time. The church of Sardis, which is, by the way, the fifth church, so we have three left, five, six, and seven. And listen to what Jesus says to the church of Sardis, chapter three and verse one. And to the angel of the church of Sardis write, these things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. Verse 4 says, You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And then it gives the promise of those that will overcome, that will walk with Christ. Now, to the church of Sardis, I want you to take note that Jesus writes to them and he says, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain. And then he says they are ready to die. Truth was about to die. Truth was about to be eclipsed completely by the darkness of papal reign. Now, during those 1260 years, people lost view of the scriptures and the papacy was ruling. And yet during that time, there was also an awakening or a reformation. And the message that is given to Sardis is the message, strengthen the things which remain. They're ready to die. And yet there were those that did that. And they are described there in verse 4. It says, you have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. Who are these that did not defile their garments? Who were those that stood for truth? Who were those that contended for the gospel, for the things that were ready to die? It was, of course, the Reformation. Those that stood up and that... Um, stood for the truths of Scripture and said, here we stand. And amongst those was Martin Luther, of course, that nailed the 95 Theses to the door of that church there in Wittenberg. And he made his stand and he unmasked the teachings, the false teachings of Rome. And these things were going on throughout this period as well. Not only do we have a period of darkness, but we also have light that went on in that period when the gospel and the truths of God's word were upheld. Of course, you will remember the opposition that these reformers met and how many times they, uh, only by the mercy of God, 
uh, were able to continue to give these messages and many of them even lost their lives for the truth that they held so dear. And yet you look at the church today and there are many Protestant denominations and yet there are few protesting denominations. Denominations, they call themselves Protestant Protestants, but the question is, what are they protesting? The word Protestant comes from to protest. And there is no longer a protesting against the teachings of Rome, but there is rather what we are seeing today, a merge towards the Church of Rome. We are witnessing before our very eyes an ecumenical movement of churches where they are coming together under the banner and teachings of Rome. It was not long ago, a matter of a few years ago, that the Lutheran Church in Germany apologized for the Reformation. They apologized to the Church of Rome. Now, you know, if Martin Luther would know that, he would turn in his grave. I mean, these, are, these men have stood for these truths. They have fought for the truth of God's word to be given to us. And many times today we see that this truth is not highly regarded, but, as, but, but in turn that we are going back into the dark ages. But God has promised that he will have his people. He will have his people throughout the ages that will stand firm for his word. Now, Sardis is followed by the sixth church, the church of Philadelphia. And Philadelphia is really a wonderful message when you read it. Philadelphia is a time of great revival and reformation. Philadelphia, the name means brotherly love. And there was brotherly love amongst the um, followers of Christ during that time. We are looking here at a time period of the 1800s. We have now moved out of the dark ages and into the uh, 1800s, and during the 1800s, there was a great worldwide reformation. Bible societies sprang up in different countries. We have the British Bible Society that was started in 1804. We have the American Bible Society that was started in 1860, 16, that made the Word of God available in the common languages of people. And there was a preaching going on regarding the second coming of Jesus Christ. We have already seen, according to the book of Daniel, this is the period that the book of Daniel is unseen sealed and opened. And so during the 1800s, there is a great revival as there is a preaching going on on the word of God, on the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation. And great joy was, was added to this movement as people gave their lives to Jesus Christ, as there was revival and reformation and a preaching of the soon return of Jesus Christ. And so there's really no reproof that is given to this church, but only, um, uh, only uh, an encouragement and an inspiration to, to us living today. And yet, this was not the final church. This was not the final letter that was written. There was one more letter that was written, and that was the letter to the church of Laodicea. And take notice of La the message to Laodicea, the final message in Revelation chapter 3. We look at verse 14. And to the angel of the church of Laodicea, to, sorry, and to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. This is the way Jesus introduces himself. He introduces himself as the beginning of the creation of God. There's an importance that we remember that God is the creator for some reason here. And then he goes on to say in verse 15, I know your works that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Listen to the graphic description of this church in verse 17. Because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, 
That's the, that's the state of the church today. That's the, that's the prescription of Jesus regarding the final church in the end of time. It's not a very pretty description. Jesus says they are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And yet, he doesn't end there. He gives them a promise in verse 18. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garment, <coughs> sorry, excuse me, and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye self that you may see. This is the message to Laodicea. The confidence that they can have in Jesus Christ because he says in verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. Now, Laodicea, listen very carefully, the word means, the name means a people judged, a people judged. Laodicea is the church that is living during the investigative judgment. We learned about the investigative judgment in the book of Daniel that has been taking taking place since 1844 when Jesus as high priest moved from the holy place to the, into the most holy place to uh, accomplish that final work on the antitypical day of atonement. We are living in the judgment hour of earth's history. Laodicea means a people judged. And yet at the period of the investigative judgment, many have lost sight of the creator. As a matter of fact, in the very day and age which we live, we are bombarded by evolutionary teaching. We are bombarded by this concept and worldview that there is no God at all. Even in the denominations, there are Christian denominations and the, the majority of Christian denominations that have bought into the teaching of Darwinism. And that there is no creative God, that God might exist, that he might have started this thing, but they really are looking at answers uh, in evolution, uh, evolutionary theory. But look at the message to the Laodicean church. Jesus introduces himself as the, as the beginning of the creation of God. Why? Because the Laodicean church needs to know that God is the creator. The Laodicean church needs to know that it is God that started this world, that he created in six days, that he set aside the seventh day as the Sabbath, the memorial of creation, and that it is God that will work in our lives to recreate us from this dead formulism that we find ourselves in. The description to the Laodicean church is not a very nice or very, uh, it's not flattering at all. And yet, the promise is given that if we acknowledge our condition of being lukewarm, that there's also a way out, and that is to come to Jesus that offers this great, great promise that he will give us the eye self, which is spiritual discernment. He will give us the clothing of his garments of righteousness. He will give us gold, and that gold is a representation of our faith. Uh, it, says in, it says in 1 Peter that the gold is more precious. Uh, our faith is more precious than fine gold. So we have faith. We have the garments of salvation. We have spiritual eye self, spiritual discernment that is given by Jesus Christ so that we can stand in these final hours of earth's history and be ready for the final deliverance when he comes. Now, we are living in the time of Laodicea. We are living in this investigative judgment. But praise God, we have Jesus Christ by our side. As we learned in our study on the book of Daniel, Michael will stand up for his people. He stands by our side. And we can have confidence 
regarding our future when we put our trust in him. When you look at the ancient <coughs> city of Laodicea, you will notice that um, the archaeologists have, have, have put some pieces together regarding the city of, of Laodicea. It was a very, very wealthy city in ancient times. And Antiochus, he built it for his wife, uh, which was named Laodicea. And um, the city was destroyed in AD 60, but then it was rebuilt with, uh, with its own funds. And it had this fascinating pipe system in the city which would um, allow water to flow to the city because not far away there were these hot wells and so they would pipe the water into the city but as they were being transferred from the hot wells into the city it would become lukewarm by the time it was in the city and so you have this Laodicea and this language of lukewarmness that was also um, uh, very real in its, in its um, graphical uh, setting and location in the first century but more than that this is a whole um, spiritual meaning of God's church in the end of time. And so it's just fascinating to see how the seven letters were seven literal letters to literal destination of churches in the first century, and they made sense, those letters, when they were written to those churches. But more than that, they give us a panorama of what's going to happen throughout the ages, as we have seen. And the descriptions, they match the periods of times from the first century until the second coming of Christ. And we are living clearly in the time of Laodicea. We're living in time where there are popular preachers that are presenting messages that are contrary to Scripture. We're living in a time period where, where, where preachers, are, are, preachers are proclaiming their own words and the traditions of man rather than the teachings of Scripture. We're living in a time in which the Creator God is being replaced for the inventions of man and the teachings of man. And yet God is coming soon and he has sent his son Jesus Christ and he's knocking on the door and if any man opens he will come in listen to the promise in verse 20 as we close Jesus says behold I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come into him and dine with him and he with me to him who overcomes I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches my friends we can take heed to those words tonight we can open the door of our hearts we can invite Jesus to come in and we can experience the blessings that he has in store for us we can experience the gifts that he has promised to this movement and to us as individuals so as we see we've looked at the panorama of the Christian age the Christian ages throughout the Christian ages we have seen Ephesus Smyrna Pergamum Thyatira covering these periods of the apostolic church the persecuted church the compromising church the dark ages then we came to Sardis which was a picture of the Reformation Philadelphia, a picture of the revival in the early 1800s, and then Laodicea, the judgment hour, the very days in which we are living. We are living in very, very important times. And each promise that is given to the churches in Revelation are really a fulfillment of the promises that were originally given to man in the beginning. When man lost uh, Eden in the beginning, God, God promised that he would restore Eden. God promised <clears throat> that if, he, if they would be faithful, that he would lead them to a new Eden, a restored Eden. And so every time you have the, the curses that are mentioned in Genesis, we have the promises in uh, Revelation that 
correspond and fulfill and ultimately bring us from that curse into the blessing that God has in store for us. I'm not going to read all of these, but these promises are given to you and to me, and we can be confident tonight that as we read the promises given to the seven churches, that they are personal promises to you and to me, and we can grasp that by faith. Let's pray together as we invite Jesus Christ into our hearts as we open that door for him. Father in heaven, we want to thank you tonight for your word. We want to thank you for being with us, for guiding us, and we want to thank you for the invitation that you have given to us through the churches, through the message to the churches. Lord, we want to open that door tonight and allow you to come in. We pray that we may be willing to accept you and your truth, even though, Lord, it would cut into our experience and cause us to have to change in areas of our life. Help us to be willing so that we can have you living and reigning in us and that we may be ready when you come the second time. Thank you so much, Lord, for being with us during this study. I pray that we may gain the blessings out of being part of the Laodicean church that accepts your gifts, that we may have the eye self, the gold and the raiment that is promised. And Father, thank you for these promises because we have the confidence that you have promised and that you will also fulfill according to your word. For these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If this episode impacted you, please share it with others. Amazing Discoveries is a donor-supported ministry. To help us keep producing content like this, visit amazingdiscoveries.org. And, as always, you can find the visual presentation of this episode on ADTV.watch.